Welcome, friends. I'm Sarah Ann Stewart, and this is the Awesome Inside Out Podcast. Now, I'm not sure how you ended up here today, but I want to welcome you with open arms. Because while our past may be different, I'm going to take a wild guess that we share one common desire to have a deeply fulfilling, extraordinary life in a body that we love. A life free of diets, free from guilt, and free from shame. In each episode, we're going to dive deep into mindset shifts that give you the power to decide how you feel, not the media, not your past, and not social conditioning. Then you'll discover how to use this inspiration and this new sense of confidence to be the best you, the you that you are meant to be. So get ready, my friend. It is time to get awesome inside out. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Awesome Inside Out podcast. I am so, so pumped today to have one of my best friends, Max Lugavir, on the show. Max is a filmmaker, health and science journalist, podcaster himself, sought after speaker, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Genius Foods. You may have seen him on Dr. Oz, The Rachel Ray Show, The Doctors. He's been on numerous publications along with contributing and being featured in the Today Show, The Wall Street Journal, and the list goes on and on. To sum it all up, he's a human encyclopedia of health information with a crazy powerful story. So in this episode, we're going to cover a lot in a very short amount of time. We're going to geek out on a little bit of science, not a lot. Don't worry. It's 101. I promise it's going to be easy to understand, really useful and illuminating. We're also going to talk about willpower and discipline. This is something I get asked all the time. And in short, how to stay on track and stay committed to your wellness journey, along with how to interpret and research and just continue to find new knowledge and studies and all of the things that him and I do every single day. So I know you're going to get so much from this episode. I have a feeling you're going to listen to it more than once. Grab a pen and a paper. If it's around, if you're driving, no worries. But if you can possibly grab a pen or paper, I know you're going to want to jot down some notes. You're going to have lots of aha moments. So let's get started. Welcome, Max Lugavir, to the Awesome Inside Out podcast. I am so stoked to have you. Thank you for being here. I love you so much. I love you. I'm so excited to be here. Congrats. This is amazing. So right before this podcast started, Max and I took shots of quite a bit of ginger. <laughs> and what was the other thing? Sheila G. Sheila G. It's an immune boosting supplement, both that did not taste well. So we might not make it through this podcast, but we're... If one of us has to escape to the bathroom, <laughs> you're forewarned. We were like, that was not smart before an hour <laughs> podcast, but we're going to try. So welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, which I would be surprised, Max is like an older brother to me, like the long lost brother I never had, the wellness expert, the mentor. He keeps me in line with my wellness. He educates my husband. So my husband stays in line. He's just part of our family. We actually all text each other like, what's up fam every day. So I'm super stoked for you guys to learn a lot about his knowledge and his expertise. And for those who don't know, listening about your incredible story to how you became a health and science journalist without any medical background, right? No medical background. 
how did this happen? So tell us kind of the background in the short of it. I know it's a really long story, but I'm sure people would love to hear how this happened. Like someone with no medical knowledge becomes this incredible celebrity, New York Times bestseller, author, yeah. documentarian. Is, it, is that how you say it? Documentarian? Yeah. Yeah. Well, at this point, I have some medical knowledge, but I'm not a, you know, I don't like to misrepresent myself. As you mentioned, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm, medical doctor. Yeah. Yes. I really just wanted to be kind of an example for people. I mean, that was, I guess, my earliest uh, goal, setting out to begin, you know, feeling out and putting out content in the arena of nutrition and lifestyle and particularly how both relate to brain health and brain function, because I felt that this is an area that is a huge knowledge gap for people. You know, most people, I think, today outsource many aspects of their lives. The world of specialization has led to a whole generation essentially being hyper-specialist. We go to school and we train to get good in our respective niches. But, you know, as I've once heard said, specialization is for insects. A hunter-gatherer, our ancestors had to be self-sufficient. And so whether it's health knowledge, nutritional knowledge, financial knowledge, culinary knowledge, knowing how to cook, these are all, I think, crucial parts of the human experience. And we've lost touch with that. You know, we outsource our healthcare to our doctors or our registered dietitians. We outsource our financial knowledge to our financial managers. And we go to restaurants and we order in to cook. So, I mean, cooking is a lost art. And I happen to be personally touched by the consequences of this in regards to health because I had a mother that was very sick and she passed away about five months ago. And we actually have this in common. I think like you have a similar story with your dad, which is beautiful. But, you know, I felt very much when my mom... About eight years ago, she was diagnosed with a neurodegenerative complex of syndromes. You know, it, it, we weren't sure, was it Alzheimer's disease? Was it Parkinson's disease? It looked like a little bit of both. And I felt in going to some of the top academic research institutions in the U.S. with my mom, the Cleveland Clinic, Johns Hopkins, Columbia, NYU, you name it, I felt like I experienced on loop the same thing in every instance, and that was diagnose and adios. Essentially, a doctor would run a battery of strange tests, and my mom prescribe, you know, a drug or titrate up a drug that she was already on, perhaps, and send us on our way. And I felt so hopeless and helpless and scared. And I felt like I was experiencing this all in a vacuum with my mom. I had nobody to turn to, nobody to ask, you know, for help or for insight. And it was really disenchanting. I mean, I grew up actually a huge fan of medicine and I still am a huge fan of medicine. I was pre-med in college. And the only reason why I didn't go into medicine is because I realized a mutual love for creativity and storytelling. And that kind of changed my path. And I went into documentary filmmaking instead. But when my mom got sick, I had always had, you know, this belief that food is a form of medicine. I'm not going to say that it is medicine because food certainly didn't cure my mom of what it was that she had, but food has an incredible potential to prevent many of the exact types of chronic non-communicable diseases that are now saddling society. I mean, type two diabetes, obesity, you name it. And so when my mom's brain health became compromised, I had a feeling that there might be something in the medical literature to be learned. And I certainly wasn't tipped off to any of the insights that I would later discover 
by my mom's doctors. I had to literally roll up my own sleeves, go to work, digging into the primary literature. And, you know, before long, I was reaching out to some of the researchers that were publishing this material. I eventually ended up going to some of their labs in multiple countries. And yeah, I've achieved um, quite a bit. I mean, I've really, I've learned a lot and I certainly don't know everything, but I've really kind of dug into the nutrition literature as it relates to brain health and dementia prevention. And at this point, I'm just very lucky that I've been able to educate lay people and I've also been able to affect healthcare. I've co-authored a chapter in a textbook that is available for clinicians on the clinical practice of dementia prevention. I've lectured for continuing medical education. And so, yeah, it is kind of an amazing thing. You know, I don't think that anybody can do what I've done, but I had a background in journalism I used to work for a TV network in the States. It was a news and information network. And I've been, I've always been very science minded. So I was, when my mom got sick, I was the perfect sort of substrate to attack this problem. I was like the right person for the job, you know, and I just kind of seized the moment and stood up and that's what you're doing. So it's great. Yeah. It's so profound. And I have, I mean, I've bought, I don't know, probably 50 copies of the genius foods by now giving them out. So basically everything that you were researching went into this book called Genius Foods. It doesn't have the, it's just Genius Foods. <laughs> <laughs> and what were the, like, if you could break it down, just, I mean, again, this is, you know, there's so much in this book. I highly recommend everyone getting it because it's, it's really, really profound. But what did you see over and over in your research that really is making a huge impact on our well-being, our health, mentally, emotionally, physically? Like what was the conclusion from all of your research? And I know we were talking about earlier that the research is never done, right? It's yeah. constantly in it. We're constantly learning and growing. But in terms of what you've kind of put together in this book, what were some of the things that you just saw over and over that really do make profound differences in, in people's health? Yeah, I think the overarching theme, one of the overarching themes, I mean, depending on what day of the week you ask me, I might have a different take because, you know, nutrition science is complex. Mm -hmm. And we live in a complex time where people's food choices are the result of innumerable variables, you know, from mere proximity to, you know, if you're close to vending machines all day long and cafeteria style junk foods, I mean, those are the kinds of foods you're going to eat. But then they're also, you know, they're also subject to cultural influence. They're subject to emotional influence. You know, many people today are stressed out and when we're stressed out, we like to eat. So if I, had to break it down today into something that's going to really help you procure the best brain health possible. I would say avoid packaged processed foods. You know, the fewer ingredients, the better. And this is not just an appeal to nature. You know, this isn't just the fact that natural foods, you know, foods that are minimally processed are going to be better for you. But processed foods today are vehicles for some of the most toxic compounds in the modern food supply. You know, everything from polyunsaturated grain and seed oils like canola oil, corn oil, soybean oil, to emulsifiers, which have been shown to erode the gut mucosa, which is this really important lining in between gut bacteria and our circulation, essentially. So, I mean, these emulsifiers are in everything. They're used to give packaged processed foods creamy textures and blend together oil and water and, you know, other compounds that don't necessarily mix. They're found in like ice creams, certain almond milks and things like that. But then even beyond that, even beyond compounds that are added to make these foods more delicious, you have 
chemicals that are, are not listed on the ingredients list. And these are compounds that sneak in just as a byproduct of the manufacturing or packaging process. So we can talk about phthalates and bisphenols like BPA. These compounds are readily found in the food supply. It's scary. I mean, just the other day I was reading an article because uh, it struck me as kind of strange that restaurant food was such a... People who tend to eat in restaurants more frequently have higher levels of these compounds in their bodies, plastic-related compounds. Many restaurants, what they do to keep food warm before plating the food is they keep it warm in a sous vide system, which is basically like you're boiling food in a plastic bag that's sitting in water, hot water. So, I mean, that's like a perfect way to add plastic to your food. And yeah, these compounds are endocrine disruptors. They're found in very low levels in the food supply, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee that they're going to be safe just because, you know, they're in the food supply at low doses. Yeah. It's mind blowing to me when we think about putting even plastic in the microwave or, you know, like I think we all have to just, especially, or just putting peanut butter and jelly sandwich in a plastic bag and having it sit in the sun, like all of these things, right. We have to become conscious of them because they're all interrupting, like you said, endocrine disruptors, and they're definitely impacting our health. And I think so often we're like, well, it's the most convenient way. It's the easier way. It's faster. It's less expensive, but yet we're so over-toxified in our system, right? That, and in Europe, a lot of these things are banned and other countries, a lot of these things are banned to cook this way and to have this kind of packaging and to have these kind of chemicals preserve our food. But yet in America, we're not recognizing that in other countries are banned and here they're not. Yeah. So, I mean, I think once, once you get those foods out of your life and kind of treat them more as treats, perhaps, you know, a lot of people follow an 80-20 rule. I like to follow a 90-10 rule just because, you know, the safest level of ultra processed food consumption is zero, but obviously that's not practical. And so, you know, I just think that the more you're able to become aware of these consequences of packaged food consumption, then the more it's informed consent, the more you know better, you know, and the more inclined you may be to act perhaps. But yeah, I think all that stuff is key. And just to be clear, like there's no direct relationship between BPA that I'm aware of and phthalates and Alzheimer's disease or dementia, for example. But I think medicine has suffered for too long by taking this reductionist approach, you know, where we become so obsessed with putting a name on a condition. And for the longest time, the brain was thought to be separate from the body, essentially, because it was guarded by the blood-brain barrier, right? Which was this, like, immunologically privileged shield by which things that were below the body were very selectively allowed entry into the brain. But now we know that the brain that that barrier is more permeable. You know, fat-soluble compounds are able to enter. We now know that the brain is connected to the body through the lymphatic system, which was only discovered within the past decade. So the health of the body informs the health of the brain. And endocrine disruptors are also potentially able to um, affect development. And, you know, it's just not something that I think we need, you know. It is not worth the risk. Not worth the risk, totally. And you are, I honestly feel like of every human on this planet that I know personally, you are the most disciplined when it comes to your health. Like it is mind blowing to me. I remember 
the night we found out that you became a New York Times bestseller, we were like, I don't know if you remember this, we're like, let's go celebrate. And my husband, Craig, was like, bring out the wine and the champagne. And, the, and Max is like, I'll have my regular, you know, like just your regular food. Or And I know you, you love to celebrate and we fun all the time. But for your birthday, you know, Craig's like, big cake for Max with sugar. And you're like, ah, you know, and so is this discipline? Because I think people have a hard time with discipline. People have a hard time with the word willpower, right? The idea of taking care of their health, like having to make that choice every day. And they almost don't see the why behind it. And they fall back into old patterns. Does the discipline come from the research? Does it come from knowing too much? Does it come from diving into all of this knowledge and just knowing that if you don't make if you make choice A over choice B, these are the potential consequences or could it be both? Is it because of how you feel? Like, where does that come from? Because I think that so many people are lacking that discipline and they had awareness around how to achieve that. It's a good question. For me, I don't feel like I restrict myself. I eat the genius foods. You know, I eat healthy, whole natural foods until I'm full, you know, like I don't hold back. So I feel satiated all the time. And I also, you know, I want to feel good. Like I think so many people today, they go through life thinking that it's normal to feel kind of mildly anxious, mildly depressed, bloated, gassy, constipated, or have diarrhea freak, you know, constantly all around the clock. Like people have like problems with their digestion. People feel weak and lethargic and tired. And I think, you know, it's astonishing what a human being can get used to. So I think many people are just walking around like they feel that way all the time and they're used to it because they think that that's just kind of part and parcel for what it means to have a body in the 21st century. You know, the body's just not meant to feel all that great. But when you realize that you only get one body and that it's your vessel and that, you know, how you feel in the short term is important, but it also, you know, influences the way that you're going to age and how long you're potentially going to live and, you know, the time that you have to give to your loved ones and the way that you show up to your loved ones, you know, are you feeling on high alert all the time because you're eating a high sugar diet that's causing your sympathetic nervous system to be constantly kicked into high gear or kicked into gear? Are you, you know, constantly in a state of fight or flight? Are you anxious because you've got low grade inflammation, you know, causing your body to essentially exhibit like a slew of sickness behaviors that are designed to pull an animal away from the herd so that it can, you know, reserve strength and energy for healing. And so as not to, you know, spread the infection. So these are all like ways in which our behaviors and our beliefs and our minds, our mental health are influenced by diet and lifestyle. And, you know, life is too short to, I think, spend it feeling that way. So that's when I think about like discipline, when I think about like, you know, is the red velvet cupcake really worth it to make me feel crappy for the next three hours? It's not, especially when I know that that red velvet cupcake is going to make me want a second red velvet cupcake, you know, or a third red velvet cupcake in my case, like those foods are major triggers for me. So that's why it might look like discipline, but I've just learned what my trigger foods are. And I like to feel good. And I like for my digestion to be as predictable as it can possibly be. I mean, sometimes we eat the wrong food and it like, will mess up our plans, you know, because it, it messes with our digestion. To, to me, eating consistently is a really powerful way of, it offers predictive power. I know that my stomach is going to be good and it frees me up to do whatever the hell I want. Yeah. I mean, uh, I think, I don't remember what doctor said this, but just the idea that we don't know how good we're supposed to feel. Like 
if you think you're feeling great because a doctor is measuring your test results compared to an unhealthy population, can you imagine if you had a different set of test results that were, you know, at a different level in terms of comparability, right? And and I see that a lot where people will say, oh, well, my test results are great. And I'm like, well, in comparison to what statistics or, and I think we have to become conscious of that and really start to identify that you're the only person in your body and you're the only one that knows how good you're actually feeling. If people were, you know, if you don't even, let's say you're not even in the awareness that to recognize would feel good in your body. I think so many people are at that place. Like so many people come to me and they're like, I don't even know how I should be feeling. Should I be crashing at 3 PM? Should I be able to sleep for eight hours? Do you have some things that you could just offer that are like very simple? Okay. You should be sleeping for this amount of time and you should be energized and be able to last all day without coffees or what are the things, I know we both love coffee, but you know, what are the things that potentially would be like a starting point for people to say, wow, I'm not as healthy as I potentially could be. Well, you definitely want to get, I'm glad you mentioned sleep because sleep is very important. You want to get eight hours a night. It's sort of like a non-negotiable. It's very powerfully involved in brain health, involved in metabolism. I mean, this might sound crazy, but just on one night of poor sleep, you become metabolically obese the next day. It's like kind of shocking, but they've done studies where they've reduced people. They've basically caused people that uh, normally sleep about eight and a half hours a night to deprive themselves of sleep, cutting their sleep short to four hours, and they become insulin resistant the next day to the degree that it's almost akin to gaining 20 to 30 pounds of pure fat the next day. That's the wreck that sleep debt does on your metabolism. It's also critically important for regulating your hunger signals. Sleep is, is, I mean, crucial. Stress, you know, stress management is very important, but there's a feedback loop, right? Like the more junk foods and crap that you're eating and the more you get addicted to junk food and also technology, sort of a, a tangent, but we can get just as addicted to our technology as we can to junk foods. They're both hyper palatable from the standpoint of our brains. And the more we allow ourselves to get addicted to either of those things, the more we stressed out we get. And that's going to reduce our tolerance to stressors that are actually good for us. It's going to reduce our tolerance to exercise. It's going to reduce our tolerance to, say, intermittent fasting, which is something that everybody, every human should be able to do. It's also going to reduce your tolerance to coffee because if you have chronically elevated cortisol throughout the day and you are drinking a few cups of coffee, which research suggests is actually good for us on average, but if you're chronically stressed out, then that cortisol is probably going to make you feel worse. I actually love coffee, but sometimes I catch myself drinking too much of it. I'm not perfect at all. No way. So I love coffee. Sometimes there's like a creep effect that happens where, you know, I begin with like a coffee a day in the morning and suddenly it's like two coffees in the morning. And then suddenly it's like a third coffee, you know, because I've had like two afternoon coffee meetings that I've set up with friends or, or, you know, for business purposes. And now it's like three coffees a day. And suddenly I start to get that like wired and tired feeling where I'm like, wow, the coffee is actually making me more fatigued. That's not supposed to happen. And so when I start to perceive that, that's when I take a week off of coffee and I reset my adenosine receptors basically, which is what happens. And yeah, the first three days of that are torture. You feel like you're moving around underwater, but after three days, it's remarkable how clear you feel and how much energy you have. And you don't even want to drink. You feel like you don't even need coffee anymore after just three days. Three days. Yeah. And then I bring the coffee back like after a week. 
Hey there, are you loving this podcast? Well, a simple way to support is to head over to sarahannstewart.com and join the newsletter. Doing this ensures that you are never gonna miss out on any details of new projects, products, upcoming events, or behind the scenes stuff that I only share with my inner circle. Also by joining, you're gonna get access to the movement, which means you are part of a free community of individuals standing in their power to live a diet-free life in a body that they love. So head on over to sarahannstewart.com and subscribe and I'll see you on the inside. I'm laughing because I remember when we were going on a hike, I was convincing you (laughs) to give up. I'm like, today is the day that we're giving up our coffee and we did it. We went hiking without any coffee. So funny. So there was a recent Instagram post, which I want to dive into because it was a really profound post for me to see that you had shared. And it was this image of basically, I don't remember the exact foods, but it was like, on one hand, you were talking about bad foods. On the other hand, you were talking about good foods. And there was kind of this debate going on the post about, well, Max, how can you say that food is bad. And a lot of women, I think were, or maybe there was a few, but I was just noticing it because I'm sensitive from coming out of 10 years of eating disorders. These women were talking about, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't write bad food. It can be triggering for women. And, you know, if you're labeling these foods as bad, you know, food should be neutral and there shouldn't be a good versus bad. And your response to it was just so incredible to me. And I, I want to dive into this because I think it's really, really important right now that we have this discussion because what I'm seeing is this like idea that food should be neutral and there's no good versus bad. But what happened with myself where the doctors quote and said, oh, well, you're physically better, but I actually wasn't feeling better inside. And the food that I was being given was what we would now consider bad food, which is, you know, all the white stuff, all the processed food, all of these things. And I don't remember your exact response. I'm sure you could share it, but it was about that, the fact that you would never, ever support or promote or share a food being good in this sort of category. And I think it's important to recognize this because I look back on my experience with eating disorders and I think, wow, what if I was being given food that actually improved my cognitive health and decreased my depression and decreased my anxiety? What would have happened then? I would have improved probably tenfold. So I don't know if you want to talk about that or if I like... And just share a little bit more about this idea that you were saying, like, I can never get behind these foods that basically are meant to, or or that cause harm. Right. Yeah. So I'll preface it by saying, obviously, I'm not a girl with an eating disorder and I'm not an expert in eating disorders. But I do think that it's important to be able to have a compass when it comes to food and be able to recognize what foods are serving you and what foods aren't. And you might say that the foods that are serving you are good foods. And you might say that the foods that aren't serving you are bad foods. I mean, it's a debate of semantics. And what I don't mean by saying that a food is a bad food is that you are bad by eating that food. That's not what I'm saying. Okay. So somewhere on social media, there's this heightened sensitivity where you're not allowed to say that foods are good or bad. Right. And you know, some foods are more nutrient dense and some foods are less nutrient dense. You can say that, a, I mean, if you can't say that a donut is a bad food, you know, it's fine to eat in moderation, but don't kid yourself. Like a donut's not a health food. It might make you emotionally happy, but also these foods are highly addictive for that reason, right? Because today in a time when everybody is so stressed out, these donuts are probably the most pleasurable thing that many people are going to have over the course of their day. 
And that's one of the reasons why when you zoom out and look at population statistics, two thirds of adults are either overweight or obese. So something is clearly broken. Now, this notion that you can incorporate all of these foods within a balanced diet, I think it's kind of, you know, I mean, this idea of balance, eat everything in moderation. Somebody commented on my Instagram and I brought it up because I thought it was beautiful. Her username is figuratively rebuilding. She wrote, balance is the sweet spot between success and failure where nothing is happening. You know, so I mean, it's like if you want to go nowhere fast, try to appease this abstract notion of balance. But if you want to turn your health around, then learn the foods that are going to be supporting your body, your biology, your health, filling you up, you know, satiating you and try to reach for those foods. It's not about demonizing any particular food group because once you start eating foods that are nourishing and satiating, you're going to crave the junk foods less. Once you start sleeping better, you're going to crave the junk foods less. So for me, it's really about just like getting these like these truths out there and helping people like really understand because there's enough confusion out there. I mean, some people, and I'm, I guess you could say privileged, but it's like opened my eyes. I get to go on television, you know, and like the Dr. Oz show, the Rachel Ray show. And I talk to like America, you know, like there are people in this country that don't know why they're obese. They think it's like a genetic condition. They don't connect the dots that it's the Coke that they're drinking six times a day. That it's the, you know, the, the Twinkies and the bagels and the chicken products and the pasta dishes and the pizzas and the burritos, you know? So that's where I think it's really helpful for me to help teach people these basics, you know? And Instagram is a visual medium. So I think like sometimes you kind of just, you're going to bump up against people with different ideologies. Yeah, of course. And for me, it's just, I think it's really important that from that post and from just recognizing, I mean, I have such a sensitivity to it because again, I, you know, suffered for 10 years, but just the idea that God, I wish there was a doctor who said, wow, there's a connection between how you feel, actually how you feel your cognitive health and the food that goes in your body. And like, can you imagine if all of our hospitals and our medical systems and our healthcare were all advocates of creating a clean food system where those foods were the first thing that came out after surgery. And those were the first things that even when you went into a clinic for disordered eating or so forth, you were given these foods that were healing foods, like how that would change our culture and our system that's in play. And so that's why I bring it up. And I think it was really powerful how you addressed it and so forth. And I think it is really an important topic to talk about, because like you said, if you want to become healthier, crowding in, adding in the good things will naturally crowd out the bad because your body will just start craving those things. Do you ever get anxiety that you're not going to be able to find the genius foods like when you're in China or like traveling to Europe for, I remember you just went to Portugal. Like, do you ever, are you ever in a situation where you're like, there's nothing I can eat? Oh man. I was in actually funny that you ask about Portugal because I, when I was in Portugal, it was a super cool event that I was invited to speak at. And I was at this like really beautiful resort in Comporta and, uh, the bread that they had brought to the table. I never eat bread. I haven't, I hadn't eaten real bread in like, I don't know, three years, four years. Yeah, I've never seen it. Yeah. And they, they I don't know what it was, but it was this beautiful resort. They brought this home baked bread. It was sourdough and it looked grainy and wheat like. And I was like, all right, let's just like throw caution test to the, the wind, test the waters. <laughs> yeah. I'm not celiac or anything. So not that I was expecting anything to really happen, 
But something did happen. I started eating the bread and um, I basically ate like, I ate so much of it, just loaded with butter. And it was like the most amazing thing ever. It like satiated my need to ever have bread again. I ate like so much of this bread. So basically the moral of the story is do your best when you're traveling, but don't, you know, you're inevitably going to end up in parts of the world where it's impossible to eat according to your privileged, like LA, New York diet, you know? And so I just think it's like, it's important to go with the flow. And then once you're back home, you can get back onto your paradigm. But the beautiful thing is when you're traveling, all the new, the novelty and the flavors and the and the activity, because you're probably going to be walking around, like it's really going to do probably no damage to you to eat food when you're traveling, you know, just because of all the other, you know, variables. Yeah. I think the people you're eating with, the experience, are you under stress? Are you watching a computer screen or are you connecting with the people around you has such an impact just as much as the food sometimes? Totally. Yeah. I mean, the problem is not the food when you're traveling. The problem is when I'm sitting home working on a writing project in three foot proximity to my kitchen just like trying to distract myself, getting up every five minutes to go to the kitchen, to open the fridge, snacking here and there. I mean, I'm just like eating so much like over the course of the day when I'm like stuck in my house, you know, cause people eat when they're bored, right? Not that I'm bored when I'm writing, but it's like, yeah, just always. It's the release. Yeah, exactly. Stress eating. We were talking about earlier, we said, where are you getting your dopamine hit from? Yeah. Like, where are you getting it from? And I think it tells a lot about person and it tells a lot about yourself. Like, where are you chasing that dopamine hit? Is it buying things? Is it, what is it? When I'm out of the house, I can eat two meals a day and I could be great and I'll get super lean. But if I'm working from home a lot, I'll eat easily a thousand additional calories just because I'm home. It's like purely a proximity to my house thing, to my kitchen thing. And dark chocolate is good for you, but like, I'm eating dark chocolate. I'm eating like lots and lots of fruits. I'm eating all kinds of stuff and, you know, add it up. It's probably like an additional thousand calories. So that's danger. When I'm traveling, I'm actually all the energy that you're expending, you know, just walking around, going from place to place. You don't even have to exercise. You're burning a a significant number of calories. It's called non-exercise activity thermogenesis or NEAT basically accounts for half of your daily calorie burn. And if you're being particularly active, it's a huge number of calories. Yeah. I'm having a flashback to how much we ate at Burning Man. (laughs) We ate a lot. (laughs) We ate a lot of food. But think about how active we were. Yeah. I will say that I love that you're sharing this about the fact that you eat when you're bored, eat when you're, you know, writing your book, because I think so often we think that this not unhealthy relationship, but sometimes the suppression of emotion and so forth is, is really just women that do that, but it's men as well. And I think it's, I just love that you share that. And and when, before we did go to Burning Man, we were both like, I mean, I had been there before, but I remember you were like, what am I going to eat in the desert? And so we spent a significant amount of time like prepping and getting food and making sure we had enough and so stocking funny. up on like so many shelf stable. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah. All of these things. You were cooking though. You made us like some salads. You were amazing. Yeah. We did some. You were like the glue. <laughs> <laughs> We did some cooking, but you know, it it was extra effort, right? Like there was definitely a few more days of extra effort, but we knew that by taking that time to really figure out what could sustain and hold in the middle of a hot desert and figuring out how we could make it work, we would feel so much better and we would feel better when we came home and it was worth every minute of it. So 
it's also how much do you want to invest? And I think it's important to look at what are you spending time in? What are you doing? Where can you put your time and energy into your health and well-being every day that you're not? So what are some other things that people should be doing? So beyond the, like the food, but just in terms of should they be doing, going to cryo and freezing themselves? Should they be meditating? You know, I think we overcomplicate this. So I want people to hear it from the expert himself. Yeah. Well, I don't think you need to spend a lot of money on cryo. Cryo can be expensive and I will do cryo sometimes, but you know, when you see me doing cryo on Instagram in total transparency, chances are I'm getting that for free, you know, and, and one of the ways in which I barter is I'll do a story about it. And don't get me wrong. I do think cryo can be good for you, but you don't need to do cryo. Cryo is a modern solution to a modern problem. And the problem is that, you know, the same way that we've become physically sedentary today, our bodies have these ancient thermoregulatory systems, you know, that keep our bodies cool when we get too hot or that keep our bodies warm when we get too cold. Those systems have basically gone dormant because today we're just going from climate controlled room to climate controlled car to climate controlled office. And so I do think exposing yourself to a variety, to a range of temperatures is beneficial. I was uh, recording a podcast actually on my show, The Genius Life, recently with my friend Kyle Kingsbury, who's a really brilliant UFC fighter. And uh, he has his own podcast where he's interviewed some great experts on health. And one of the things that he told me he does is on a hot day, sometimes he will go out for a jog wearing like multiple layers of sweats, you know, to just like really tax the system. Maybe he'll wear a backpack with some weight on it, you know, and go for a brisk walk or like a jog outside on a hot day. You don't have to have a sauna to expose your body to extremes in temperature. You can basically go and do that, you know, create a little sweat box for yourself and go walk around outside. You could take a cold shower. You can take a quick walk around your block underdressed, you know, maybe. Now, these none of these recommendations are risk-free. So, you know, if you're a robust organism, if you're strong and resilient, then they're going to help make you more strong and more resilient, most likely. If you're compromised, if you're frail, if you have a medical condition, I would, you know, use extreme caution and even ask your doctor. But Those kinds of methods give your body a workout in other ways. They're good for cultivating brown fat, which is metabolically active. It's a different type of fat. It's not the white fat that we all love to hate on, but it burns calories. It encourages metabolic health. So, you know, doing that is great. Saunas are are beneficial, but again, you know, you could just kind of wear a couple of layers of warm clothing and get out on a hot day and tax your body in that way. So I'll do that. Actually, I'll, I'll go to the gym and I'll wear like, a, uh, I'll go in like a tank top and shorts or sweats, and then I'll wear a thick sweater and I'll start to build up a sweat first early on in my workout just to get like really warmed up. And then at a certain point, maybe I'll take off the sweater because we activate some of those same heat shock pathways with exercise. And so I just like to compound it a little early on. Yeah. I've been doing that with Pilates where, because it takes a while to work up a sweat Pilates. I've just been wearing a lot of layers and I'm sweating right off the bat. I felt so much better doing that. So that's interesting. It's good to sweat. Sweating is a major route of excretion for like those plastic compounds that we were talking about before, heavy metals and things like that. It's really important to sweat and replenish electrolytes, drink water, you know, all the while. But it's, it's sweating is super important. And some people don't sweat that much when they exercise. I don't really sweat that much when I exercise. So 
I'm always trying to go the extra mile and figure out, okay, is there a sauna that I can use? Can I put a, wear a sweater at the gym to make myself sweat a little more? What was the thing you were doing today? What is that thing with the, the ropes? Oh, the, the ropes. ropes. Yeah. It's like high intensity interval training. Yeah. You're saying every day you should do something that. Something that taxes your body. A little. Yeah. It's important. Do you think it's good to have cats, dogs? Yeah. I mean, they boost your microbiome diversity. You know, a cat doesn't do it as much as a dog, you know, because especially it's like a house cat, you know, so they don't get out. They don't get outside and get all those like. like is this cat for health benefits? So Max brought his cat all the way from uh, New York when he moved to LA and the cat's become popular in LA. <laughs> yeah. So. She's popular. She's yeah. uh, Her name is Delilah. She's a little terrorist. Yeah. So you guys can hop over to Instagram and watch cat stories with Max. It's very cute. Very cute. Very, very cute. So if there was anything else, I mean, I'm so grateful for you being here. It's always such a pleasure. I thinking back to when I interviewed you for your book launch and I was just in awe of this book that you wrote. And since then, it's just been this wild ride. And it's just so incredible to see this outpouring of love from fans and people who are just taking this genius life model and just running with it and really changing their well-being. And, you know, just in the past year, if there's any other, you know, words of advice or anything that you've seen from interacting with all of these people around the world that has really, you know, shifted their well-being and experience with health. Any last words? Man, I would just say stay curious. There's always something new waiting to be learned and don't hold on to your ideas and beliefs too tightly. Always be willing to challenge them and do your part to spread the message of health, you know. Use social media constructively. Use it to share this podcast, you know, because people really need help and they're not getting it. You know, the people that have way more credentials than us that we've elected to put in charge have overseen the current health crisis. And, you know, it's a big problem. So it's just uh, we really have to look out for ourselves and our loved ones and one another and that's really it. Just, you know, be kind, stay curious and help your neighbor. Oh my gosh. I love that. Yes. Thank God for social media. As much as I'm like, take a social media detox, get off social media, tap your own intuition. I'm so grateful for it because it, you know, just from going on your podcast and sharing about my breast implant illness, I've had, you know, hundreds of women reach out from that and share their stories. I'm just, I'm so grateful for you and being on your podcast several times and our collaborations and everything that we've done together. So thank you so much for being here. If someone wants to learn more about your work, where's the best place for them to connect with you? I know you're offering what, like a free, what supplements you take on your yes. newsletter and all of these fun things. Join my newsletter at, uh, I send it out once a week, maybe once every other week. It's all handwritten. I don't have like a team of elves, you know, copywriting, like the perfect emails, you know, to send out. It's once a week, once every other week, and I handwrite them, you know, and they're all explicitly designed to improve your life. Maybe it's an exclusive discount or science that I, you know, a new study has come out that I think you ought to know about. You can go to maxlugavir.com, which is my website, maxlugavir.com, and join that. It's very easy. You could opt out at any time. And then find me on Instagram. I'm very active at maxlugavir. And then my podcast, if you enjoy listening to podcasts, my show is called The Genius Life. 
Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So grateful for you. Love you. Love you. Appreciate it. All right, guys, that's another episode of the Awesome Inside Out podcast. Thank you for being here. Wow. That was a lot of information, friends. I am so grateful for Max for being here and sharing all his genius insights with us. A friendly reminder, my loves, you have got this. All it takes is a daily recommitment to move towards that higher vision of the healthier, happier you one step at a time. What's one simple thing that you can take from this podcast today and integrate it into your life? How can you infuse your health journey with fun so that it doesn't feel like you need this tremendous amount of willpower? Rather, making healthy choices can, yes, it can become part of your natural way of doing things. I encourage you to take that thought with you into this week as you keep making big strides towards a healthier, happier you. Until next time, my friends, I'm sending you so much love. Thank you for being here. All right, that concludes this cast. It is my honor to always be here with you. But hang tight because I have one last thought. You're here right now because you are ready. Because while many of us share the feelings of wanting more, not everyone is willing to do what it takes to get it. But you are here. You are ready. So this is your opportunity now to take what you just learned and implement it today. Make a pact with yourself to put just one thing into action. Just one. Write it down, do it, and share it with me. We are all in this together. Thank you for being here. You too can feel awesome from the inside out.